We're going to start with our first lecture this morning. Dr. Jared Conley is a, d a dermatologist at Kaiser Permanente in Lafayette, Colorado, just outside Boulder. His interests include uh, complex medical derm and high-risk systemic medications. He's the chief of medical derm and the director of inflammator inflammatory dermatoses clinic. He also manages the derm high-risk systemic medication surveillance team. He's a current member of the Colorado Dermatologic Society's executive team. And please help me welcome Dr. Conley. So you know, Halloween in Vegas, a nice big breakfast, and now a talk on lupus. I guess the, the fun never stops here today. So I appreciate the turnout. I thought it would honestly be me and maybe two or three other people. So you guys are, are definitely dedicated. So for those that attended the, the talk I gave yesterday, I, I chose to talk about cutaneous lupus for the same reason that I chose to, to talk about the high-risk systemic meds. I think it's an area where people have a lot of uncertainty and some natural anxiety when they encounter patients or even the term lupus. And my goal for you at the end of today is for you to feel much more confident knowing how to manage patients that have lupus, knowing how to work them up, knowing how to establish that diagnosis. So our objectives, uh, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to review the classifications of cutaneous lupus. Uh, we're then going to review the clinical features. The next thing we'll do is examine the workup for a patient who you uh, po uh, possibly think might have cutaneous lupus. And then we're going to highlight treatment options. And then for the treatment options, we're going to focus on specifically uh, those treatments that we've had some new developments in the literature uh, that pertain to those treatment options. I didn't put a slide in here, but I don't have any personal, financial, or professional uh, um, biases in this talk at all. So before we get into the classification system, just want to talk about the epidemiology, so who gets lupus. And these hold true for folks with systemic disease or folks with cutaneous disease. So predominantly females, and females in terms of cutaneous lupus are three times more likely to develop lupus than male counterparts. For systemic disease, that number's doubled. It's six to one. The age, the most common age are women of childbearing age. <clears throat> in terms of race, our African-American patients are four times more likely to develop lupus, and they tend to have a more severe disease, especially in terms of their renal, uh, their pulmonary, and CNS disease. They usually develop uh, lupus earlier in life, and they have a much more higher, higher mo uh, mortality given the fact that their internal disease is usually pretty significant. So moving from that into our actual classification system, we usually split cutaneous lupus up into three groups, the first being acute cutaneous lupus, the second being subacute, and the third being chronic. And what we'll do here over the next several slides is go through each of these groups, talk about certain clinical features that are associated with the groups. So acute cutaneous lupus is what most people think of when you hear the word lupus. It's, it's the malar rash, so redness that starts over the, the maxillary cheek and crosses across the nose to the opposite side. Uh, typically associated with sun exposure, commonly but not always indicates a flare of their internal disease. So this is where you, you know, working in the field of dermatology can really have an impact and help to manage patients, not only just in terms of their skin, but their internal disease. And if you're not comfortable managing the internal component, which most of us aren't, pointing them in the right direction in terms of uh, a referral to a rheumatologist. The significance of developing a malar rash, as I said, it could, it could indicate a flare of their systemic disease. And 
a really helpful way to confirm your suspicion is checking some serology, which is listed here. So something called an anti-double-stranded DNA antibody, and then complement levels, specifically C3 and C4. It is known that you will see fluctuation in these levels leading up to a flare of systemic disease. So if you do see these levels fluctuate, you can contact your rheumatologist and say, hey, look, uh, they're about to flare. They usually up their immunosuppressive meds to kind of get them ready to, to get their bodies ready to handle this flare. And in a, in a lot of cases, you can prevent the flare or minimize its effect. Now, what happens specifically with these serologies is your double-stranded DNA levels are going to increase and complement levels decrease. There's not a number or cutoff that you're looking for. It is a change from baseline. So usually during the workup of systemic lupus, uh, people have had these already checked, and you're going to compare those to their baseline. So if something's increased, you know, threefold, fourfold, that's a pretty significant change. One thing that I didn't include on this slide, but we'll just, we'll, uh, you'll see as we go through the other types of lupus is this is associated, acute cutaneous lupus is, is associated with systemic disease 100% of the time, and so therefore patients have positive ANAs essentially 100% of the time. We commonly get you know, asked a lot of times by primary care colleagues, but even folks uh, less familiar with connective tissue disease in dermatology, you know, is this, a, is this a Malar rash? This isn't perfect, but it's something to keep in the back of your mind. The Malar rash is, is on the left, and it should classically spare the nasolabial fold, whereas something like rosacea, which is this photo, usually does not spare that fold, crosses over. You're obviously going to see telangiectasias uh, in folks that have rosacea. And then the other thing we commonly see, too, is seborrheic dermatitis. It gets misdiagnosed as a, as a malar rash. There, again, you're going to see the nasolabial fold involved. It usually has some component of scale or crust to it. So other manifestations of acute cutaneous lupus uh, is this sort of uh, nonspecific photodistributed rash. It's always indurated. It's typically like a red to reddish purple, um, and again, affecting uh, photodistributed sites. Brought out like most lupus rashes from sun exposure. So a classic finding in, in people who have acute cutaneous lupus is a rash that spares the interphalangeal joints. So you'll see it in the areas between, but not actually over the IP joints. You can contrast this to another connective tissue disease, dermatomyositis, where you see things like Gotrans papules uh, on the uh, IP and MCP joints. But again, in lupus, you'll see this sparing. Uh, I commonly, when I'm evaluating people with rashes, and this holds true for any rashes, I usually start with people's hands anyhow. I think you can get overwhelmed walking into the room and you see someone covered head to toe and immediately your anxiety level just jumps up through the roof. Um, you can have a lot of clues by looking at people's hands for, for more you know, conditions that are mimicking a dermatitis or potentially psoriasis. I mean, looking for nail changes is helpful. On the palm side, looking for things like hyperlinear palms and a connective tissue disease. You're looking for uh, erythema around the nail fold area, uh, dilated telangiectasias there, and certainly these findings here. So it might be a habit you want to start getting into. It can really just help lower your anxiety level. You don't just jump in by looking at the whole rash, but starting at a more distal place and working towards uh, where they have the vast majority of their rash. It also gives you time just to calm down and think a little bit too, um, which is helpful.
So there are 11 diagnostic criteria for the diagnosis of systemic lupus. Um, these are the American College of Rheumatology's criteria. The reason I put this slide up there is you need four of these to have the diagnosis of systemic disease. And there are actually four mucocutaneous criteria, meaning uh, practicing in the field of dermatology, you can actually make the diagnosis of systemic lupus all on your own. Or if you get like three of them on your own, and if you're thinking, well, I don't know, you know, their joints might be involved, you can certainly refer them. So those four would be, as we've already talked about, malar rash, we'll end up talking about here shortly, discoid lesions, photosensitivity, and then lastly, oral ulcerations, or oral apthae, which classically for lupus are gonna involve the hard palate, and they look like a discoid lesion. They're usually round with a red border and then ulcerated in the center. So it's always an important thing to keep in the back of your mind because some folks, again, as we go through the presentation, you'll be more familiar with this, do have a potential uh, to evolve into systemic disease. And lupus certainly, uh, especially for high-risk patients, is something you want to detect as early as possible so they're, they're, if they are truly developing systemic disease. Another component that usually gets thrown into acute uh, cutaneous lupus is something called bolus lupus. And bolus lupus, uh, true bolus lupus happens in folks that have systemic disease, and they are bullae that appear in photodistributed sites. It is a specific entity. It's due to autoantibodies to something called type 7 collagen. Type 7 collagen makes up uh, what we call anchoring fibrils, which essentially hold the basement membrane to our upper part of our dermis, or what we call the papillary dermis. So if you don't have that anchoring fiber holding that basement membrane down, naturally it's gonna lift up, and clinically you see that as a blister or a bullae. Certainly things like discoid lupus, uh, subacute cutaneous lupus, if it's a really intense onset, they can blister, but true bullous lupus occurs only in the setting of uh, systemic disease, and it again is photodistributed. This slides up here just uh, because there are a lot of other uh, non-specific findings that you can see in systemic lupus. So things like Raynaud's, uh, leukocytoclastic vasculitis, and so forth. So just to be aware, there are other features. They're not gonna clinch the diagnosis for you. They can be helpful, but they certainly can be seen in a variety of other diseases. So moving away from acute lupus to subacute lupus, uh, there are two main clinical features or forms of this entity. The most common is the annular type, so it is going to be a round annular plaque, usually has a raised border, and the key with this is it has trailing scale. Uh, there's not a lot of things that have trailing scale in dermatology. I mean, pityriasis rosea would be a pretty classic one. Some cases of tinea can, but usually tinea does uh, kind of more closely approach the periphery. Uh, so that's the most common one they see. There is a psoriasiform entity as well, which really and truly can look like psoriasis just in more photodistributed areas. It usually doesn't have that real thick white or silver scale that you see with psoriasis, uh, which can make this sometimes harder. Um, but if you ever biopsy something and you get a psoriasiform dermatitis and it's more photo-accentuated, it's something to keep in the back of your mind. The telltale sign of subacute cutaneous lupus is it is photodistributed. It loves the v-neck chest, the upper back, the arms. Interesting though, since it is photodistributed, it doesn't usually involve the face. And in the cases it does, it's usually just the lateral parts of the face. It's rare to involve the midline of the face. 
So important things to know about uh, a patient you might encounter that has subacute cutaneous lupus is 80% of them are going to have a positive ANA. And it's most commonly uh, when you get your, uh, if you do further testing into your ANA, it's going to be SSA and SSB positive. About one-third of these people are going to go on to progress into systemic lupus. So again, this is a, is a higher risk category of folks you're going to want to keep an eye on. When you see them, you're going to want to take a, a thorough review of systems focusing on uh, those findings you can see in systemic disease, things like joint pain, uh, fatigue, you know, uh, shortness of breath, or pain with inspiration. There are drug-induced forms of subacute cutaneous lupus, most commonly from things like hydrochlorothiazide, calcium channel blockers, terbinafine, and griseofulvin. So moving away from subacute to our last category, which is chronic cutaneous lupus, uh, this would include discoid lupus, tumid lupus, lupus paniculitis, and something called chilblains lupus. And we'll go through all these here shortly. So discoid lupus is by far the most common type of chronic cutaneous lupus. When it is active, it appears with a red inflamed border. They usually feel indurated. And in the center, you can see a variety of findings depending on is it early or more late stage. Early stage, it's usually red, scaly. Um, you might see follicular plugging, which almost looks like a comedone. Uh, if it's more uh, longer standing disease, you could start to see some scar formation in the center. When they heal, they heal with hyperpigmentation. So instead of being red, it's more brown on the periphery, and it's typically always sclerotic at that point. If it's on a hair-bearing area, since it's sclerotic, you see absence of follicular ostea, absence of hair, and so forth. Here's a good slide depicting the difference between something that's active and something that's burnt out. So on the, on the left, uh, a red border. The center there is just, you do see some follicular plugging. I know that's a smaller image. And then on the right, you can see that burned out lesion with the hyperpigmented border, and it's certainly sclerotic now in the center. Discoid lupus is a cause of scarring alopecia. Again, as the, the lesions progress, and if they're not treated early, they will heal with scarring. And then this, again, is a great example of the follicular plugging there in the, in the ear, in the conchal bowl area. You can see uh, more prominent follicular ostea there. Looks like, if you ever look at some of your acne patients, they'll have comedones in their ear. That's really interesting what this looks like. It's a good place to look if you're examining someone and you're not sure do they have discoid lupus or not, uh, to see actual discoid lesions in the ear, again in that conchal bowl, or to see follicular plugging is a great place. It's another sort of hidden gem like how hands are in terms of places to look. So there are different types of, of discoid lupus. They're, they're photodistributed, again, like most cases of lupus. There's localized, which just happens in, in one area on the head and neck region. There's generalized, which occur in the head and neck plus distal sites. So V-neck, chest, hands, arms, et cetera. And then there's something called hypertrophic discoid lupus, which really looks verrucous, really thick. This is a tough diagnosis to make um, because it doesn't have a lot of the typical features. And so your clinical suspicion has to be higher to make this type of a diagnosis. Another thing uh, people oftentimes are not aware of is discoid lupus can involve mucosal sites. So here's a lesion involving most of the lips, actually. 
So comparing discoid lupus to subacute lupus, uh, much less likely to have a positive ANA, about 35% or so. These are low-risk folks for developing systemic disease. There's been numbers reported as high as 10%. Most people feel it's probably closer to 5%, or maybe even potentially less than that. Like subacute cutaneous lupus, there is drug-induced forms of discoid lupus. This is systemic 5-fluorouracil. This is not topical 5-fluorouracil. And this is capsidabine, which both of these are used in oncology. Capsidabine is just actually the, the prodrug of 5-fluorouracil, so they're essentially the same thing. Um, so it makes sense that both can induce discoid lesions. Moving away from discoid lupus to something called tumid lupus. Tumid lupus presents, again, photodistributed sites. It's this really, really intense uh, indurated erythema. If you've ever seen anyone that has erysipelas, uh, this relates well to that. You know, when you have erysipelas, it's so indurated that you're almost getting that uh, pot orange look to the skin. And there's a real significant change in the texture of the skin if, if you feel it. And oftentimes a drop off when you're going from involved skin to uninvolved skin. In contrast to discoid lupus, uh, you do not see epidermal changes, so no scale, no follicular plugging. Like most types of lupus, it's going to heal with post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. And again, like most types of chronic cutaneous lupus, it has a low risk of evolving into systemic disease. Here's a great photo of the intense post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation in someone that has tumid lupus that's in the process of resolving. Our next chronic cutaneous type of lupus we'll discuss is uh, something called lupus paniculitis. So like most paniculitides, it presents as a red, tender subcunodule. Um, one thing to kind of contrast this to, so when most people think about paniculitis, they think of erythema nodosum. Erythema nodosum is classically going to happen on the lower leg, really in the shin area. Uh, lupus paniculitis is more proximal on the leg, so the thigh, the buttocks, the upper arm. Uh, you can see it truncal occasionally on the face. About a third of these folks have overlying epidermal changes to their lesions, but that leaves two-thirds that just present again as a red tender subcunodule. They heal, like in this photo, with these really, really big deep, deep uh, divot-like depressions. That's kind of a telltale sign. There are other types of paniculitides, usually things like a traumatic paniculitis that can do the same, uh, but in the right clinical setting, this can be a huge clue for you. Again, they have a low risk of developing systemic disease. Uh, it's a little higher than most types of, of chronic cutaneous lupus. It's about 10 to 15%. However, their systemic disease tends to be very mild and easily treated. So the last type of chronic cutaneous lupus we're going to talk about today is something called Chilblains lupus. Uh, if you know the term pernio, pernio is a reaction to cold. You see these kind of dusky patches on the distal uh, aspects of the digits. Same thing with Chilblains lupus. Um, brought about by cold weather. There's some controversy or a little uncertainty regarding this in terms of is this really cutaneous uh, lupus or is this just Chilblains happening in somebody that has lupus? So now that we are a little more familiar with the different types and different presentations of, of lupus, it leads to the question, okay, somebody walks in the door, you think they have it, what do you do? And this oftentimes is, is where a lot of the anxiety uh, tends to occur. So you have some weapons you know, that you can rely on. You have basic histopathology, you have serologies, you have immunofluorescence if needed, and you have just some specific lab testings that, that we'll uh, review here momentarily.
So on a biopsy, uh, I mean, people commonly freak out if they get a biopsy back and says lichenoid dermatitis or interface dermatitis, and they, you know, knee-jerk say this has to be lupus. There's some features you want to see in addition to that. So an interface dermatitis, what does that mean? Well, we're going to kind of focus in on this area of this biopsy and see here. So an interface dermatitis classically means at the junction between the epidermis and the dermis, there's a lot of extra space. Let me see if I can get this guy to work. So if you just look where the junction of the epidermis should be, you see all these little tiny pockets of, of light, essentially, these white circles. That is the changes that here that you see uh, in an interface dermatitis. So basically, you have such an intense inflammatory response at that DE junction that you get loss of the basement membrane and some slight separ separ uh, separating of the dermis and epidermis. The other features that you see are something called superficial and deep perivascular inflammation. Um, so, basically you have, I can't get the pointer to work, so I apologize. Basically you have some blood vessels up top, right underneath the, uh, or in the papillary dermis, and you have some way down deep, and you have inflammation around those sites. The other thing you see is something called periadenexal inflammation, so around hair follicles. Uh, you'll see, again, these blue cells, which are lymphocytes attacking those areas. Ideally, you want to see all those features. The addition of some mucin in the dermis is sometimes helpful, but that's a relatively nonspecific criteria. And like anything, it requires some clinical correlation. Uh, lupus predominantly is a clinical diagnosis. These tests are designed to help aid you in establishing that diagnosis if you're ever uncertain about uh, whether or not clinically they truly have it or not. So immunofluorescence. Uh, if you do decide to send a sample for immunofluorescence, what you should see in the case of lupus is granular deposition at the basement membrane or the, the epidermal dermal junction. And that granular deposition is of immunoglobulins, most commonly IgG, occasionally it can be IgM, and then complements, so C3. I think immunofluorescence, in my experience, is an area, again, where people have a lot of uncertainty about, should I do it? Do I have to do it? What does it mean? Again, it's a tool that can be helpful. People commonly ask, too, do I biopsy lesional, perilesional, totally uninvolved? What do I do? And to, to fully answer that, there's some historical perspective that's needed, and then there's some uh, non-historical perspective. So right now, if you were uncertain, and you biopsy, and you just said, I, I want to do a biopsy for immunofluorescence, what you would want is lesional skin that you'd send off, and you'd see, again, that granular deposition. If it's positive, great, that supports your diagnosis. If it's negative, it does not rule out lupus at all. That's why this is uh, an adjunct test. The issue of biopsy non-lesional skin, again, is more of a historical perspective. It used to be used to predict people that had a higher risk of systemic disease. So if you biopsied uh, non-lesional skin, came back with the granular deposition, these folks were high risk for having a flare. As we already talked when we discussed acute cutaneous lupus, that has essentially been replaced by serologies of things like double-stranded DNA and complement levels. So you might hear the term lupus band. Lupus band traditionally was biopsying non-lesional skin, having that come back positive, and having that be a predictor of uh, systemic disease. 
That term gets used incorrectly a lot. A lot of people will just call the generic immunofluorescence results a lupus band test, but truly it's only in the setting of biopsying non-lesional skin to predict systemic disease. Just like biopsying lesional skin, if it's positive, it can help support your diagnosis. If it's negative, it does not rule it out. And again, the non-lesional skin immunofluorescence is, is rarely done. So moving from path uh, tests to uh, more of a serology, you know, the big one is, is ANA. And again, it's an area that has a lot of anxiety. I know Dr. White spoke to you guys yesterday about this, so we'll be a little more brief on this. But there is a historical perspective to ANA that I think is kind of important to understand some changes that Dr. White alluded to in his talk. Initially, the first test was something called the, the lupus cell line test. You took bone marrow from a normal person, you added serum uh, from a person you thought might have lupus, and if they truly did, their neutrophils would essentially eat up or phagocytize the bone marrow cells, and you'd get these huge blue nuclei within the, the neutrophils nuclei, and that was a lupus cell, and that indicated someone that had lupus. There was a lot of shortcomings with that. There was a, you know, an individual bias in terms of you had to actually uh, trust the person performing the test, and so we progressed to something called fluorescent ANA. Fluorescent ANA used animal substrate, most commonly uh, rat liver or monkey kidney to run the test. So you took that uh, substrate, you added a patient serum who you thought might have lupus, and then you added anti-human uh, antibodies that had a fluorescent tag on. And if they lit up, then that was a positive ANA. The big problem there is we're not rats, we're not monkeys, so they don't, those, those animals don't have the same nuclear antigens that we have. So about 15%, maybe as high as 20% of people had a negative ANA, but still had lupus. So as we've progressed to using this HEP2 cell, which is a set of cells that come from uh, humans, uh, specifically from a laryngeal squamous cell cancer line. This is, we're now running the substrate on human test. Our ability to perform this with high sensitivity is great. And as Dr. White alluded to, most people feel like this is 100% accurate. Um, you know, at worst case scenario, it's about 99%, if not higher than that. So going back to the fluorescent ANA, again, these people that had negative, uh, or ANA negative lupus, it was because that we were running the test on animals. And the animals most commonly didn't have things like SSA and SSB. So you have this large group of people that historically, if you read textbooks or read old journal, journal articles, you'll hear people refer to you know, the treatment of ANA-negative lupus. Another thing people say was, what is a positive ANA? Again, there's, there's something you have to add some clinical uh, knowledge and expertise to in order to interpret this. Essentially here in this chart uh, is a breakdown of the false positive percentage based on the titer of the ANA. So a lot of people will say, well, is it one to 40? Is that positive? Is it one to 80? If you chose 1 to 80, for instance, 13% of those people at a positive ANA are going to end up not having lupus. Uh, so most people will use 1 to 160. And these are, at, at most, at most 5%. And it's, and it's now, as we've progressed in our ability to perform the test, it's probably much less than that even. I know Dr. White talked with this. I'm just going to breeze over it. But false positives, the, the, one of the most common is, is age. So like 15% of folks over the age 55 have a, have a positive ANA without any significance. So I would encourage you 
to check ANAs when it's clinically relevant. It's not a good test just to throw at people if you don't have any suspicion or if your suspicion's low. So there are patterns that come back with your report. You know, you get the titer, let's say 1 to 160, and then it'll say something like speckled or homogenous. And a lot of people just kind of just discard that information. I think um, a lot of times it's actually helpful. This might be where Dr. White and I kind of uh, disagree a little bit. He sort of thought it wasn't very helpful at all. I think uh, it is lab dependent. I think most labs are fairly good at, at reporting these. And again, it can only at times help support your suspicions. I wouldn't ever make a diagnosis based on just a pattern. So the patterns are homogenous, peripheral, speckled, nucleolar, and centromeric, and we'll go through these here. So homogenous pattern uh, detects anti-double-stranded DNA and antihistone DNA. So the clinical significance of that is, we already talked about double-stranded DNA, could indicate a systemic flare. If it's histone antibodies, uh, that oftentimes suggests people that maybe have drug-induced lupus. So if you're suspecting that, uh, and you perform your ANA and it comes back homogenous pattern, again, that can help you out with your suspicion. Peripheral detects, uh, you know, what I listed up here, we'll breeze over this one, because it's really honestly not very significant at all. This used to be the most common pattern reported when we were running the test on animal substrate. As we've improved our ability to run the test, this rarely gets reported. Um, and actually, the peripheral pattern was, was technically the homogenous pattern back in the day. And so now this is rarely seen in some types of lupus or linear morphia, and it doesn't have much clinical significance. So the speckle pattern is going to detect things like your anti-Smith, your SSA, your SSB, and RNP. And these, as we'll see in a little bit, are your, your ENA antigens. So ENA is extractable nuclear antigen, and it detects those four tests right there. The clinical significance of that, if you just go through the individual ones, anti-Smith is a highly specific test for lupus. So you could detect lupus or confirm your suspicion of someone has lupus. SSA, SSB, as we talked about, is subacute cutaneous lupus. Also can be Sjogren's. And then RNP is seen at times in folks who have mixed connective tissue disease which is a set defined combination of things like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, scleroderma, and commonly some sort of a myositis, whether it's polymyositis or dermatomyositis. The nucleolar, nucleolar pattern detects anti-SCL70 antibodies, which can indicate systemic sclerosis, or what we call scleroderma. And then the anti-centromeric pattern detects those anti-centromere antibodies, which you can see in people who have limited scleroderma or crest syndrome. So moving away from our serologies, we've talked about PATH, we've talked about immunofluorescence. There are lab tests you can consider when you're working somebody up for lupus. Uh, ANA, we've discussed ENA. We know now what that includes and why we'd consider ordering that. Our double-stranded DNA and complement levels in the right setting can be help, helpful to, uh, to maybe predict a flare of systemic disease. A urinalysis and a BMP are great things to check for all patients with lupus to make sure their kidneys are okay. A CBC can be helpful at times uh, to look for things like leukopenia or thrombocytopenia, which are seen in systemic disease. And then a G6PD, if you came to the talk yesterday I gave, is uh, used at times for anti-malarial therapies. There are some people that don't bother checking that, so uh, you probably want to check with who you work with in terms of that. Is that a test they commonly check before they give things like hydroxychloroquine? 
So now focusing on the treatment of cutaneous lupus, there are some adjunctive therapies, things like sunscreen. There was a great article this past year in the JAD that talked about folks with discoid lupus and that with good sun protection, they could actually prevent flares of their disease. The other interesting thing in that article was it showed that patients are poor judges of their sun exposure. Uh, patients commonly weren't able to recall or realize the amount of sun they had was enough to trigger a flare of their disease. So you will have people sometimes that come in with discoid lupus that will say, I never go out in the sun, but yet they're you know, covered in lesions. It, it doesn't have to be they went to the beach and laid out or they went to a tanning bed. It can be a pretty small amount of sunlight, but with good, vigorous uh, sun protection, you can essentially prevent the, the, the disease. Stop smoking, we'll talk about this in the upcoming slides uh, in terms of its relevance here, so we'll leave it as that. For more localized disease, you can consider localized therapy, topical interlesional steroids. This is the one time where you'd, you'd strongly consider using a super potent steroid like clobetazole on the face. Uh, something like or, excuse me, um, hydrocortisone, 2.5% isn't gonna probably touch discoid lupus at all. Uh, so you have to use really strong steroids on places where you normally would not. Topical calcineurin inhibitors can be helpful. Retinoids at times can be helpful if it's more keratotic. And then pulse dye laser, there's some, a uh, little bit of evidence out there. It's hard to draw set conclusions because the reports out there use variable laser parameters, uh, but it seems to be a promising treatment for localized disease. So the issue of smoking, there are two recent articles that address this. This is not a new issue by any means, but these were the more recent ones, and I always like to focus on my talks on recent literature, so we're all up to date. There was one here in the arch Archives of Dermatology that talked about the use of anti-malarial therapy in the setting of cutaneous lupus. And basically what they did uh, in this study, it was done in the University of Pennsylvania with over 200 plus folks in the study, was they, they followed people up at two months. And if they didn't have any improvement, they did one of a few things. They continued them on their original anti-malarial. They added combination therapy, so something like hydroxychloroquine and quinacrine or they switched them from hydroxychloroquine to chloroquine, and then they continued to follow them up. And what they saw was regardless of what they did, people showed improvement. So the, the take-home point from this study is we probably don't give anti-malarial therapy a long enough uh, duration before we scrap it and say, well, they're resistant, it doesn't work. It's a slow-acting med, easily can take three months, if not six months, to see the improvement. If you're seeing less than desired improvement, rather than giving up on your anti-malarials, again, you can switch from the classic one, which is hydroxychloroquine, to chloroquine, or add quinacrine to, to, to either of those. The nice thing about adding uh, quinacrine, for those who didn't attend the lecture yesterday, is quinacrine has no added uh, toxicity on the eye, whereas if you did hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, your risk goes way up. The second... Um, uh, the second one here was a uh, really good review done, by, done at Wake Forest, and it looked at all uh, the folks who ever have been, or all the studies, excuse me, ever, who have ever been uh, addressing the idea of smoking in response to anti-malarial therapies. And so the data from uh, this study here and all these reviews showed that chronic cutaneous lupus is more common and more severe in smokers, and that it seems to decrease the response to anti-malarials. Um, in terms of why, that's more of a debater. There's more controversy around that. There's some uh, evidence out there to suggest that 
uh, smoking results in a more rapid clearance of your antimalarial therapy. There are theories out there that smoking causes damage to the DNA, and if you get exposure of the DNA, that maybe that makes um, an autoimmune condition more likely. We don't know, but that seems to be more likely. Um, and I apologize, I got too excited. I skipped ahead one slide. So that first study up there actually was not what I originally had said. This was a recent study that looked at the effects of smoking, uh, again, done though at the University of Pennsylvania. And what they did in this study was they put people into two groups, those that smoked, those that did not, and then followed them forward. For treatment, they either were on antimalarials by themselves or antimalarials with an additional immunosuppressive agent. Uh, and what they found was the same conclusions by the, the latter study we just reviewed that smoking makes cutaneous lupus more severe, more common. But in this specific study, they did not see a decreased response in, in, uh, to antimalarials. And in fact, the folks who smoked did better on monotherapy with antimalarials than they did on combination therapy. Now, the points to know specifically about this study are this. Uh, they were not stratified by how much they smoke, you know, whether it was a cigarette or two, whether it was two packs a day, that was never ascertained. The other thing was the folks in the combination therapy, so the antimalarial plus the immunosuppressive agent, had higher severity scores. There's a score out there called a Clausi index that's used to degrade uh, the severity of skin lupus. So they had higher uh, severities than the folks on, on monotherapy with an antimalarial. And so the thought, you know, that the authors concluded was, well, maybe antimalarials don't work with more severe disease. But again, this latter study, being more thorough, uh, investigating many more studies, kind of came to the conclusion that you do see a, a decreased response in folks that smoke. And in the studies that they reviewed, those people were stratified on their smoking habits. So I tend to favor the conclusions of the latter study. So systemic therapy includes things like antimalarials, systemic corticosteroids, immunosuppressive agents, things like methotrexate, mycophenolate, azathioprine. Retinoids are helpful, again, for more keratotic lesions, uh, things like acetretin or isotretinoin. Thalidomide and lenalidomide are helpful for recalcitrant disease. Dapsone, really, I listed there, it works, and the only time we really use it in lupus is in the setting of bolus lupus. Uh, and then TNF-alpha antagonists we'll talk more about, and there's a few here we're gonna speak more about in terms of the recent literature. So, when I sort of jumped ahead, I was referring to this study here by Chang. Uh, again, the conclusions for that is prescribe it for a while, don't give up, counsel patients before you put them on the medicine that this is gonna take some time, this is not an overnight fix. Uh, I think if you set the, their expectations like that, they're, they're much more likely to adhere to therapy. And again, if you don't get a response, consider adding combination therapy or switching to chloroquine from hydroxychloroquine. The next study here, I think, was, was one of the neatest studies I've seen. Um, it was recent, and it was done in France. And they actually were able to measure serum concentration of hydroxychloroquine in patients that had cutaneous lupus. And essentially what they saw was the higher that concentration was, the better folks did. The study wasn't designed to, to find an optimal concentration, but that was their general conclusion. The other thing that they noticed is there are definitely a percentage of people that are slow responders. Their concentration rose, despite compliance, much more slowly than what you would expect. The, the really interesting thing was that in about 10% of the people, they saw low to undetectable levels of hydroxychloroquine. Now, hydroxychloroquine has a half-life of about 40 plus days, so it stays in our bodies for a long time. If you're having measurements of serum, uh, serum levels, 
and you can't detect it, you're not taking your medicine in, <laughs> regularly at all. So it's an interesting thing to keep in mind before you change someone from an anti-malarial to something that's immunosuppressive, it's probably a good idea to have a conversation about are you actually taking it? And a large percentage of the people in the study that were non-compliant actually admitted to it. So moving to mycophenolate mofetil, uh, there was a recent study um, regarding the use of mycophenolate mofetil in folks who were, uh, had resistant disease to anti-malarial therapy. So using this as second-line therapy. And again, as we talked yesterday, the key with mycophenolate mofetil is similar to retinoids in terms of you just have to give it time. It's a slow-acting medicine, three months minimum, and oftentimes you need to dose at the upper limit. So it's commonly dosed two to four grams a day. And in this study, the, the average effective dose approached three grams. So uh, again, dose higher, consider dosing higher, and definitely give them at least a three-month minimum. So lenalidomide is the next one we'll talk about here. It's, again, well known that thalidomide works well for recalcitrant disease, so it makes sense that lenalidomide in the same class of medicine would work. Um, the nice thing about lenalidomide is it has a lower risk of peripheral neuropathy than what we see with thalidomide. Um, it, does, it is a teratogen like thalidomide, so it has that same issue there. But this was, again, a recent study that was done in five patients that just had really horrible unrelenting disease, and, and the list of previously tried therapies was essentially all-inclusive for these people. So these were you know, the, the, the most challenging types of folks to treat, and they saw a response in four of them, uh, which was encouraging, because prior to that, these folks didn't have a lot of improvement on anything. One thing that they did see was one of the partial responders actually ended up flaring and developed systemic disease. So as a caveat of what they were doing in the study, they were biopsying people's lesions and then staining them for different immunohistochemical stains to look for uh, different signs of inflammation or different cytokines that are involved in the pathogenesis of lupus. And what they saw in this uh, patient that flared was that their markers really shot up. And so with this being a limited study, small group, they had to make a conclusion, well, we're not sure if lenalidomide can actually cause stimulation of a T-cell response and therefore push people who maybe are more susceptible to developing systemic disease, kind of push them into that systemic flare, and so to use it with caution. Like anything that's new and used in a small population, just more thorough studies in a larger scale obviously need to be done. So we'll finish up here with the role of uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitors. Um, there's some uncertainty here regarding their, their use. TNF plays a major role in the pathogenesis of lupus. Its levels tend to rise as disease severity rises. Uh, and there were isolated reports in the early to mid-2000s about the effectiveness of using TNF therapy in treating lupus, whether it was systemic or cutaneous disease. However, there was a really big review done in 2010 that looked at people uh, who were on TNF therapy for their lupus that developed skin manifestations of their lupus thought to be related to the medicine, so 103 of them. Most of these were infliximab, some were adalimumab, and there were a few that were etanercept. And so the conclusion there was, well, maybe this isn't a very good therapy. Maybe this can actually cause flaring of the disease, especially skin disease. And so you've seen the number of reports of using it successfully drop off. However, they are starting to come back. And 
as of now, I looked on clinicaltrials.gov, there's actually a study enrolling patients for etanercept uh, to use to treat cutaneous lupus. Uh, so the thought with this is, is it a class effect or was it you know, something unique about infliximab and adalimumab that made it more likely than etanercept? And more of that will come out in the upcoming uh, trial that's unfortunately right now it's still in the early stages of recruiting. And that was it. I'm happy to take any questions. Um, if I'm going to be using topical therapies while I wait three months for my antimalarials to kick in and they start to get better, how do I know it's not my topicals and not the antimalarials? And then if I'm going to um, maybe do a combo antimalarial, does that mean another three months? So I'm six months into treatment and I'm, what else can you offer these patients besides topicals? It's a great question. I think anytime you're faced with a challenge of using a therapy that it's delayed, you should try to come up with something to use in the meantime, whether that's topical therapy, adding another agent if something's going to respond more quickly. Uh, to answer your question, how do I know it's a topicals or not? I look at, for treating lupus, I look at topical therapy as a reactive treatment, meaning you have to wait for the lesions to appear before you can start to treat. I look at systemic therapy, especially in the case of antimalarials, maybe preventative. So I would usually do exactly what you said. I would try to bridge people. If they can do it with just topicals, fantastic. As they improve in three months, six months, then if they don't have active lesions, they're naturally going to stop using their topical therapy. And then hopefully from that point on, their flares of their cutaneous de disease are few and far in between. And when they do, they can certainly resume topical therapy. Um, but again, that's the nice thing about systemic therapy is it's, it's preventative, it's not reactive. Other questions? All right, thank you very much. You guys have been great. I can't believe the turnout, so. <laughs>